Luke chapter 11, verse 37. Open your Bibles, please. And so there's a, a kind of uh, Christianity, there's a kind of religiosity that can actually condemn you, can condemn me. And we can get stuck in it, we can be blind to it because the default posture of the human heart is this works-oriented, earn-my-place-with-God posture. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson calls it the Edenic poison or the serpentine theology. So he goes back to the garden. There was a certain way in which the serpent argued. It's an Edenic poison that has you know, infected us. It's endemic to us, it's our default. The gospel alone is what un undercuts it. And so the serpent argued in the garden, he said something like this, well, and Adam and Eve succumbed to it, that God isn't quite that generous and gracious. He's not really out for your good, and salvation can't really be a free gift. Rather, God's somewhat withholding, he's demanding, and salvation is about you doing enough to satisfy him or to earn his acceptance of you. It's polar opposites. And so, the scary thing is that two people can be doing the same thing externally, but do them for entirely different motives. And Luke 18, in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, Jesus actually makes that point. They're both praying in the temple. Externally, they're doing the same thing. But their hearts are poles apart, meaning the kind of faith they have is diametrically opposed to each other. And so, for someone like that, we say, well, what will wrench that person out of that mindset? What dislodges them from such an endemic, entrenched, fallen man posture, you know? And in our passage today, we're going to see that Jesus uses very confrontational language, and you think about it in this section of scripture that there was a, a disciple that came to Jesus when he saw him pray and said, teach me to pray. And it's this idea that disciple felt really broken up in a failure to pray, and he came to Jesus in need, and Jesus' response to him was incredibly tender. He teaches him the Lord's prayer and then gives him untold amounts of encouragement to pray. And yet now we see Jesus show up for a meal and he encounters people with a different posture and he lays into them. And we say, where is that tenderness and patience? He seems so caustic and harsh. Is that our savior? But I want you to see that Jesus is expressing just as much compassion with the Pharisees and lawyers as he did with that broken up disciple. It's that tough love needed this confrontation and therefore he gives it. 
kind of reminds me, Alan tells her personal testimony when she was 13 years old and all the youth were up in the youth house and the, they were having fun. They weren't paying attention. Their youth director was trying, doing his best to, to, to preach and teach them. And finally, they're so disinterested and they're cracking jokes and it had gone on for a while. And finally, the youth director looks at them and says, I don't think any of you are Christians. You know, Alan's going, wait a second, I'm at church. Like, I go to church. I'm always at church. But that helped put her on the road to really assessing where her heart was. And that's Jesus' goal in this passage, too. Verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us alms, those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you're witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. What a breakfast. Or maybe a lunch. It was an early meal. They had a long day after that one. Can you imagine? Have you ever been in an uncomfortable meal? Like you didn't intend to have a friend that says, every time my wife and I go to a really expensive restaurant, we get in a fight. We just decide to go to Applebee's or, you know, it goes better. But 
Can you imagine sin? You've, you've invited Jesus to your house. You want to know a little bit more, and he lays into you like that. I want you to see this is amazing grace that he does this. And sometimes this is exactly the tough love you and I need. So Jesus is speaking like an Old Testament prophet. You could take what Jesus is saying here and put it on Isaiah 5. And the prophet Isaiah says a series of woes in Isaiah 5. The issue is, if you remember where we've been in Luke chapter 11, like Jesus casts out a demon that made a man mute, and the Pharisees and lawyers are sitting there, you did it by Beelzebub, or they do it, this sign isn't good enough, I want another one. Jesus ends up telling that parable of the evil spirit that gets cast out of a person and he goes through arid places looking for some other place, other person to inhabit. And it's that eerie phrase, he's looking for my house. And in the meanwhile, this person's life now without the demon is swept and put in order. So it's made a nicer place. The demon can't find any other place, so he gets seven other spirits stronger than he, and he comes back and reinvades the person and sets up his house again. And Jesus is saying through that parable, you know, reforming your life isn't enough. Good habits aren't enough. Straightening yourself out isn't enough. You need a revolution. You need a new king to take up residence in your life, the stronger one that dislodges the strong one, the devil. And as he speaks then about that sign, this person, which is me, Jesus speaking, is the one greater than Jonah. And he's the one greater than Solomon. That's who you need in your life to take up residence. And then he moves on from there and he talks about this light. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm shedding the light of the gospel. But he makes this statement, if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And so you have all these things, these warnings he's telling the crowds, but within that, the instigators of the crowds are the Pharisees and lawyers who are standing aloof to Jesus and will not accept him. So really that parable about the demon that left the man and then comes back is also a parable of the Jewish people of the day. That when John the Baptist came preaching, many repented of their sins. It's as if the demon was cast out, but now they're supposed to receive the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, they won't do it. And Jesus is saying the situation is very dire here. If you don't embrace me by faith, seven demons are going to join that one. It's going to be a lot worse. And we're going to see that play out because the people and the leaders are going to band together and they're going to say, crucify him. May his, we're, they're going to say, Caesar is our king, crucify him. And then they're going to reject him. And within a generation, they are going to be destroyed by Rome. And so Jesus comes to these Pharisees' home and he has all that in his mind and he's deeply concerned about them and wanting to urge them to embrace him and let loose their formal religiosity and their works-oriented mindset and to embrace the stronger one who's here. 
And so Jesus confronts them with that Edenic poison or that serpentine theology that they are wrapped up in. And we see characteristics of it here. Vestiges of it in our lives that we can repent of and believe the gospel more wholeheartedly. So seven characteristics of the Edenic poison or serpentine theology. We can say works-oriented or legalistic righteousness in the first place is hypocritical. It's just hypocritical. And so Jesus enters the home of this Pharisee and he purposefully does not wash his hands. It's not an issue of germs. It's an issue of ritual cleanliness. And... um, Nobody says anything, but this Pharisee is astonished. But we know that Jesus can read minds. He knows what people are thinking in Luke. So the Pharisees were all about, as you know, this religious purity. And they accentuated ceremonial righteousness in part for good reasons. They didn't want to be contaminated by the world. They put up big walls. They wanted to guard their national identity. They wanted to like symbolically enact resistance to pagan rule. They also wanted to move God to act to restore the nation. So they wanted everyone in the nation to maintain the high level of ritual purity that the Old Testament prescribed of priests on duty. Like everybody would always have to be as if They were a priest on duty, and even more. And so underneath this, you have this mentality that they presumed that God would be gracious to them because of what they were doing and because of how they were keeping themselves separate and distinct. That was based upon these efforts they were making. So whereas the Old Testament acquired an Old Testament uh, priest to wash his hands and feet as he entered the tabernacle, they said, no, everyone's got to wash their hands for ceremonial cleanliness before every meal. And this got a life of its own. It became like three washings during the meal and became certain prescribed amounts of water. The rules kept multiplying because the issue is they viewed sin more out in the culture than more in their hearts. And so Jesus, whom Luke calls the Lord here, reminding us that he's the authority, the stronger one in their midst. He knows their thoughts. He takes this opportunity to confront this Pharisee and the lawyers. And he says, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. It's a characteristic of works-oriented righteousness that tends to be hypocritical. He's going further than hand-washing to the whole system of ritual cleanliness. And he says, not only are you making extra rules to make yourself acceptable to God, but you're even using those rules to cover up and even condone a heart that's full of greed and wickedness. You're, You're hypocrites. Literally from the origin of the word, you're play acting, you're going through the motions, you're, you're pretending, you're playing a part. And so Jesus just lays it out there, you're a fool. In scripture, the word fool means someone who's 
living life blind to God and his ways. Like, it's a practical atheism, he's saying. And so you just got it all wrong. To be only concerned with washing the outside of a man is as foolish as only being concerned with washing the outside of a cup and not the inside. Because God made the outside and the inside. In fact, 1 Samuel says, man looks on the outer appearance, but God looks upon the heart. There's a priority there. And so what's the remedy he gives them? He gives them this unusual phrase where he says, give as alms those things from within. Everybody has trouble translating this. Give as alms those things from within and behold, everything is clean to you. And I think the point is, don't focus on your little external rules. Focus rather on your heart. Practice concrete love for others from a heart that is honestly repenting of greed and wickedness and growing in love. And that's what shows you're really walking in the light. It shows you know me if you're engaging like that. And so we can see ways in which we could go through a form and that our little customs and, and rules we have could hide a heart that's far away and it warns us. Well, the second characteristic is works-oriented legalistic righteousness majors on the minors. And so Jesus, like an Old Testament prophet, utters his first woe. And that word woe combines a deep sense of pain and sorrow with also this strong threat of danger. Like, in this essence, Jesus, in the strongest way possible, is saying, it grieves me that you're locked into a way of living that's going towards judgment. I mean, it's a threat of condemnation. It's a threat of the wrath of God, and he's not happy about it. He's engaged in this. So Jesus denounces the Pharisees and lawyers for another characteristic spirit, that of majoring on the minors. And what the principle behind this is, that throughout scripture, moral righteousness is way more important than ceremonial righteousness. And we could think of a passage such as Hosea 6, 6, when God just looked at Israel and said, look, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God and not burnt offerings. Like the most important thing isn't that you took a goat, it's that where's your heart? Like how are you treating people? So Jesus says, you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. So the point there is, you painstakingly, meticulously take a tenth of your very smallest garden plants. I mean, how much work did they have to do to come up with that? Something that really the Old Testament doesn't even make clear you have to do. And yet, something so clear and obvious and central as doing justice to people in loving God, you don't bother to do or explain away. It's, it's really something how we can do that. The, the works-oriented mindset likes measurable, controllable rules that you can check off and not a heart engagement with that tough stuff of showing mercy to people and loving God. It's a characteristic of the Edenic mindset 
or works-oriented mindset. So we ask ourselves, am I majoring on the minors or am I seeing what's most precious to God? Third, works-oriented legalistic righteousness is vain and conceited. So Jesus hits him again, all in grace. His second woe denounces the Pharisees and the lawyers for living for what they get out of being respected leaders in their community. What do they get out of it? The best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. So you get the picture that it's, it's feeding something for them to be like this. Their, their vanity and their conceit, they have a tremendous amount of influence in the culture, a lot of power, de facto power in society. And in their heart, they love that honor and praise. And so the legalistic spirit fosters this for it's all about outperforming someone else or doing better in comparison to somebody else in visible ways. And we can slip into that so easily. Recognize it for what it is. It's the works-oriented approach to your relationship with God. Well, the fourth is a works-oriented legalistic righteousness has a destructive influence and so Jesus' third woe, he denounces the Pharisees and lawyers for thinking they're exerting a positive influence while really they're contaminating the people with a harmful influence. And um, just think how they would have received this woe. Pharisees, you are unmarked graves. Well, so there was a Jewish custom of whitewashing gravestones before the Passover. And the, and the reason they whitewashed them, I guess it looked better, but mainly uh, that when pilgrims came for the Passover, all these caravans of pilgrims, that the gravestones would be visible so that no one would get themselves inadvertently unclean by walking over a grave. They thought that if you walked on a grave, you became unclean. The Old Testament never said that, but this is another instance of how they overextended Old Testament law. The Old Testament said if you touch a dead person, you will be unclean, but not if you walk on the grave. So one commentator says this, that Jesus is rebuking the Pharisee this way, just like you say walking over an unmarked grave will ceremonially defile a person, the truth is, if a person walks according to your teachings, they'll be spiritually defiled. And now, like that was the Pharisee's strong suit. They were the teachers. And now Jesus is saying, your teaching has an adverse effect on people. It's a negative influence. They become spiritually defiled. You're molding people to become works-oriented and legalistic in your approach to God. And it has a negative influence on the people of God. Fifth, a works-oriented legal righteousness misrepresents God. And so after three rows directed to the Pharisees, this lawyer pipes up and says, teach you're insulting us too. Which underneath that is, surely you don't mean to do that. And Jesus goes, well, that should be obvious. Lawyers were often Pharisees, and lawyers did the legwork for Pharisees. I mean, they're in the same group. And so you have an indication that the Pharisees and lawyers are just boiling over right now. 
So Jesus' fourth of six woes, uh, excuse me, the fourth through the sixth woe gets down to the heart of the legalistic spirit and why it has a negative harmful influence on others. And the fourth, he says specifically to the lawyers, you load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. That's a tough thing to say to a teacher, teacher of God's word. And what he's saying is, you're crushing the people with burdens that they can't carry. Like you've so multiplied rules for them that that's all they can see. And you're crushing them not only with the number of rules, but also this emphasis on rule keeping. And in this way, you're really misrepresenting God. You're showing God to be this exigent, demanding person that they have to be afraid of offending all the time or almost walking on eggshells around or they have to earn their keep with him rather than holding to what the Old Testament over and over manifests when God says, I'm gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. You're not representing God adequately. It's a burden. And so that leads us to say, well, what's my view of God? I know he's holy and just. Do I also know he's full of grace and loving kindness to sinners? That what makes me acceptable to him is that I'm a sinner who comes to him for grace. Six, works-oriented legalistic righteousness rejects the need for a savior. So this is a long one, but so I'm not gonna go all into it, but the fifth woe denounces the lawyers and really the whole Jewish leadership with agreeing with and completing the job of their ancestors. And so their ancestors killed the prophets. They killed the prophets who decried Israel's sin and declared the righteous redeemer to come. And so what was happening in Jesus's day is that there was this movement to build graves and monuments for past leaders. And so it was, a, it was a thing. And Jesus is observing it. Everybody knew that was going on. It was a way, in their view, to respect them. But Jesus turns it on its head and says, no, wait a second. Far from honoring these past leaders by building fine tombs for them, you're actually finishing the job the ancestors started when they killed them. And so why is that? Well, Jesus' point here is the same spirit that motivated their ancestors to kill the prophets is the same spirit that's motivating you to reject and oppose me. The Old Testament prophets pointed to the true prophet Jesus. And they all went through a ton of suffering to proclaim God's word and prophesy the Messiah. Now the one they pointed to is eating lunch with you and you're critiquing him. The ancestors attacked my precursors, and now I, the fulfillment, the ultimate prophet to come, is in your midst, and you're turning against me. Woe to you. A legalistic spirit sees no need for a redeemer because we think we can do it on our own. And the Pharisees and lawyers felt like they were in pretty good place. 
And they weren't longing for such a redeemer that Jesus was. One that would cover their sin and grant them a true righteousness. Well, finally, seventh, works-oriented, legalistic righteousness shut up the scriptures. So the sixth and final woe is the inevitable result of the, other, the previous two. It's the result of misrepresenting God and rejecting their savior. And Jesus aims at the lawyers, the supposed experts in the law, and he says this, you have taken away the key to knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. And that had to sting a lot too. In essence, Jesus is saying this, you have the job of opening God's word to the people. Like that's your job. And God's word is this long, involved, multifaceted, beautiful, wonderful, marvelous story of abounding grace that a holy God would save a sinful people through his beloved son. That's what it's about. Yet you've converted it into a book of hundreds of rules and regulations to earn God's favor. Therefore, you have effectively shut up God's word to the people. You have so missed the point that you converted it into something it's not. It's not a rule book. It's in essence a love story of the groom coming after his bride and suffering every cost to get her. And you've missed it. And so you've shut the scriptures and the story of redemption to the people that you are charged to teach. And so Jesus gives them these seven characteristics of the works-oriented legalistic righteousness, the Edenic poison, the serpentine theology, which they were in danger of so embracing and living in light of that they would be condemned eternity under the wrath of God. It's, it's hell that he's warning them against. It's a serious dinner he's having with them. And yet we see characteristics of this in our life that hinders us from loving Christ as he's revealed in the gospel. That causes all kinds of discomfort and difficulty in our view of people in our walk with Jesus. And yet Jesus, you just see him eating a meal, looking at them and saying, won't you wake up? Won't your eyes see that I am the antidote to the Edenic poison. That I am the one who crushes the serpent and the serpentine theology. That I'm here, that your very pride is gonna lead me to the cross, but God is so gracious that he uses your sin to lead me to the cross so that he can judge me in your place for all of that arrogance and pride and unbelief that you have. That as I suffer in your place for all your sins that you're not even aware of, and I give you my righteousness, as you receive me by faith, you are clean and covered and acceptable to God. He looks at you and he says the same thing. I'm the antidote to the Edenic poison and I'm the head crusher of the serpent. 
and I've come to redeem you because that's the measure of God's abounding love for you in Christ. And won't you receive me, the stronger one, who's greater than Jonah and greater than Solomon, and who's here to inhabit your life and walk with you unto glory. That's the gospel. 